Justin Trudeau simply cannot continue to govern this country now that Canadians know what he has done. That is why I am calling on Mr. Trudeau to do the right thing and to resign. Further, the RCMP must immediately open an investigation if it has not already done so. This all points to a government and a Liberal government and Mr. Trudeau, the Prime Minister, were more interested in helping their powerful friends than they're helping everyday Canadians who are struggling with housing, the cost of medication, the cost of living. This is Lowercase Truth. SNC-Lavalin is a company that employs 9,000 Canadians across this country. They create many thousand spin-off jobs in peripheral industries. They directly or indirectly put food on the table for countless families as one of Canada's major employers. But they are also a company facing serious criminal charges. The context is a tough one with potential job losses in the thousands. Well, Justin Cousins' 2015 Trudeau has come under fire over the last little while, to say the least. Trudeau's woke feminist brand has taken a big hit in the wake of allegations that he pressured then-Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould to offer deferred prosecution to SNC-Lavalin, who are accused of bribery and corruption in Libya. Trudeau claims he was just looking out for Canadian workers and jobs, like he always does, because SNC employs so many Canadians who could lose their jobs. But do we buy this? Is it fair to create an ultimatum between law and order and jobs? Jody Wilson-Raybould was shuffled from her position as Justice Minister to Minister of Veteran Affairs in January of 2019, and many are calling this a demotion, because she just wouldn't play ball. Three women have now left Trudeau's caucus in the wake of this controversy. We see other major party leaders, Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh, seizing this opportunity to amplify just how scandalous the scenario is. Everyone is gearing up for the next election. Everyone wants us to believe that they are the antidote to Trudeau's corrupted government. But who can we actually trust? Aren't all politicians just doing what they do, demonizing each other, making big promises that they probably won't keep to get elected? Now, I'm not pleading for some sort of political nihilism, but how do we actually know what is true and what is authentic when it comes to politics and politicians? Today, I speak with Christo Ovalis, who is a postdoctoral fellow and historian at the University of Toronto. He's a political commentator, and he wrote a book called The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor, and the Canadian Social Democratic Left. He's here today to talk about the SNC-Lavalin debacle. Is it really, truly as scandalous as people are making it seem? My guest believes that it is. He sees it as liberals cozying up to corporations that export corruption and bribery to other parts of the world. And he thinks that Trudeau's broken promises on electoral reform and faux woke agenda have held true progressives hostage, thinking that the only options are the conservatives and the liberals. We talk about how, you know, how do we get out of a lesser of two evils politics where we aren't really voting for something but against something worse. All very inspiring stuff, to be sure. So, welcome to Lowercase Truth, Christo. Thanks for having me. So, this podcast deals a lot with the notion of truth in this seemingly post-truth world that we're living in. And so, I think a good place maybe to start, even though I think we have a lot to talk about today, would be the the SNC Lavalin situation, this this debacle here in Canada, because there seems to be kind of new additions to this story every day, and there's also been a great deal of political spin on the issue, making it difficult to really like sort through what's actually going on. Do you think that's a fairly fair assessment? Yeah, no, I would I would certainly agree. Okay, so for our listeners, I'm going to try and give a little bit of recap of like what I understand has been going on, and then maybe you can jump in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so SNC-Lavalin 
is an engineering and construction firm. They're based in Montreal. They've been around for a super long time, and they mostly work on government contracts in Canada and around the world. And uh, this company seems pretty scummy, from what I can tell. Uh, they've been involved <laughs> in all sorts of scandals. Yeah. Uh, so to name a few, in 2008, they were accused of bribery and fraud in connection with a hydroelectric dam project in India. Um, they were also uh, accused of bribing, bribing executives for a government bid for a contract on the McGill University Health Center's Glen Campus in, in 2010. They were forbidden from banning on World Bank contracts for 10 years because of their misconduct in places like Bangladesh and Cambodia. And the list goes on and on. Most recently, and the reason that they've been in the Canadian headlines so much these days is that, in, or since 2015, they've faced corruption charges in Canada on accusations that they bribed the Libyan government to win contracts under the Gaddafi regime between 2001 and 2011. And a guilty verdict would prohibit this company from bidding on public contracts for, for 10 years. So, so in early, or early February of 2019, former Justice Minister and Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned from cabinet and testified that the prime minister's office had tried to pressure her into agreeing to this remediation agreement or deferred prosecution agreement for SNC-Lavalin. And this is a new measure from what I understand. This was only added to the criminal code in 2018. Is that correct? I, I believe so. Yeah. And I believe that it was, it was relatively under the wire and how it was introduced and there's some indication that maybe companies like SNC were specifically lobbying for legislation of this variety. And, you know, yeah, n none of that is, is, is super 100% clear. But, but yeah, the, this, this has roots in, in legislation, which is relatively new. And, and, and that's part of the, the, the controversy here. Right, because I, I guess it was part. It was actually a part of the Liberal Party's 2018 budget, and and the rationale behind these agreements, from my understanding, is you know to apparently prevent harm to innocent stakeholders, employees, when companies are scummy and corrupt and like are exporting corruption in in places around the world. Um, so the idea that the whole company, its employees and stakeholders, will not be punished for the supposed you know actions of, of a few individuals at the top uh, who are making decisions is that is that a fair assessment of that I mean I think that's the that's the spin at least I mean maybe it's like I mean I, I'm of the mind that this is largely to protect SNC the company and not necessarily the workers but but in, in general I think that's how uh, deferred prosecution agreement in general and how you know the government's position here which is that look we put if we put pressure on Jody Wilson Raybould it wasn't illegal pressure. And, and, and it was always based on the concern for the jobs of the SNC-Lavalin workers, right? So that's, right. that's certainly the, 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 the narrative, yeah. Yeah, that's certainly the narrative because Trudeau has come out. Um, also, Gerald Butts, Trudeau's principal secretary, they've denied allegations that they put any pressure on, on Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and, and claim, I guess, that conversations – they did have conversations about potential job losses that could come from from criminal prosecution, but you you don't buy this argument. No, not not really. There's a few reasons. One, there's like the broader understanding that like the, this particular company has very close ties to the liberals. Uh, it's made a lot of donations historically historically to the Liberal Party. It's made illegal donations fairly recently to the Liberal Party. It's also the case that, you know, Justin Trudeau and, and a lot of senior liberals have talked about, you know, the need to protect jobs here and to do what it can to protect jobs. But we've seen them do nothing for GM workers in Oshawa. Um, they've also talked about protecting pensions and pensioners, yet the Liberal Party has consistently rebuffed uh, efforts by the NDP, for instance, to change their bankruptcy laws to ensure that when companies do go under, workers' pensions are protected. So, for instance, um, because of liberal liberal reluctance, uh, pensioners both at places like Sears you know, and, and, and companies like Stelco uh, have had their pensions and their benefits slashed uh, while those companies were going under paying out bonuses to CEOs and, and to other executives. So, I mean, I don't buy it in that sense. But also it's, it's the issue that, you know, at first a lot of us seem to get baited into this idea that, okay, it was 9,000 jobs versus like law and order. 
but at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, it really does seem like we actually haven't gotten any proof about the nine thousand job number. We don't necessarily know where that comes from, and my inkling is that that one comes from SNC itself. And so, in that, yeah, sorry, in that in that sense, then it's like, is the government effectively weaponizing corporate spin as part of its uh, own spin here, which is to say, you know, uh, we have to protect these nine thousand jobs. And we'll have to take SNC's word for it that actually 9,000 jobs are on the line. Because there is no proof that I've seen about any job numbers uh, more than that or less than that. Right. And, and I mean, this rhetoric has been used by this company more than once. So I guess the, the leaders of the company have been under fire many times for all of the examples I mentioned I mentioned just a few, min- few minutes ago. And... I listened to a clip of, of, of the former CEO talking about how, you know, we need to get past this scandal. Like there's innocent people, like innocent workers that need to get back to work. And, and, and this kind of, this kind of rhetoric is used, I guess, almost as a, a diversion tactic, you're saying? A mixture of diversion and also hostage holding. It's to say like, don't, if you hold us accountable, you're going to be punishing hardworking, you know, uh, Canadian Janes and Joes. And that'll be on your hands. So, like, get off the moral high box and think about regular working people for once. And that's that kind of rhetoric. Justin Trudeau used that in Parliament just yesterday when Jagmeet Singh asked about the scandal. And he said, well, I would expect the Conservatives to not care about workers. But the NDP? Oh, my goodness. And you could hear the the, the, the smarm and the disingenuousness coming from the Prime Minister's, you know, uh, coming from the Prime Minister's mouth. Because he, he knows it's BS. But it's this narrative that it's like you got to choose law and order or workers. But again, the, the reality here is that we don't have proof of that. And if we really are serious about, well, not punishing the workers, then we need to talk about why not, why not cancel the deal, force the company out, take its stock price, buy it as a national corporation, run it as a crown corp, and then protect those jobs, and then run it as a publicly owned company. In effect, punishing the owners by stank- tanking the stock price. Um, because they can't bid on contracts or the company's worthless, buying up the shares at a discount and then making sure those workers do the work they would do anyway. I mean, that's not necessarily the answer, but if the government said they would do anything to protect the innocent people, then like it seems to me like there are alternatives other than just letting the company itself get off scot-free. Right. So you think it's kind of a false dichotomy that you know we have to choose between law and order and jobs. Yeah, no, certainly, uh, certainly, in, uh, certainly uh, in general, but I mean, especially in this case, because again, it's not clear to me that we actually have to make that choice. I mean, Guy Caron from the, you know, in a Quebec NDP MP has spoken about, you know, we need to maybe look at, at nationalizing uh, SNC Lavalin. If this company is supposedly so important that keeping it accountable uh, to our basic laws and, and the basic ethics of what it means to be Canadian. That, you know, that we're not breaking the law, we're not bribing murderous dictators and their sons, uh, buying them uh, uh, special gifts, buying them uh, sex workers in, in certain instances. Um, the reality is, is that we need to look at why these companies are so big that we, we seemingly can't actually hold them accountable. And we need to ask, why can't they be owned by the people? So I think that there are alternatives here, and the liberals are, are spinning this in a way that allows them to protect SNC, which is not just a company that has a key role within the, the Quebec economy where the liberals are basically staking their re-election uh, strategy. It's not only that, it's a company with specific close ties to the liberal party and key liberal figures. And I think that's why this doesn't pass the smell test. But I guess what I find kind of interesting is that like, it does seem to be a valid thing to consider job losses. Like, it's hard to disagree with that fact. You know what I mean? Like, the fact that people would lose their jobs as a result of this is something that a lot of people, at least the media, have reported on as being something that we should consider and that, you know, is not illegal or unusual for a PM to talk about with an attorney general or a justice minister. Do you, do you buy that? Well, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, and so I've read a lot of conflicting stuff, but there actually is a lot of debate about whether thinking about jobs here is actually legal or not. There's been, if you read it up on, on this, the le- nature of the legislation is that considering the economic impact of the decision, uh, you know, is, is some people have said it's illegal to consider that. And once you start saying, if we actually punish the company on our traditions of law and order, 
and it costs X amount of jobs, the second you start thinking about that, that could cross the line into, into illegality. But others have said, well, depending on how the prime minister and other figures do it and how directly they word it, maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to enter into that particular question. But, but the reality is, is there's a debate, at least, about uh, even uh, about the appropriateness and the legality of considering job losses in a case like this. And again, I go back to this fact. The government really wanted to protect those jobs. It could punish SNC-Lavalin, and it could start a crown corporation to do the work SNC does, because it's largely government contracts, and it could run it as a nonprofit corporation and hire those workers back and do the work. There are alternatives here toward the you know besides propping up a a, a corrupt you know dictator supporting murderer supporting torture supporting company. There are alternatives to that. And again, this goes back to the reality that Justin Trudeau hasn't done anything to protect fierce pensioners. He hasn't done anything to protect Stelco pensioners. He hasn't done anything to help GM Oshawa workers. He's done nothing in any of those cases to actually intervene and find a way to save those jobs. So you have to ask. And this goes back to Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, where she said to the prime minister, I am an MP from Papineau, and, so, and I am an MP from Quebec. And this is what it really comes down to, is I really think Justin Trudeau w- interfered in this case for the particular political objectives of helping the Liberal Party in Quebec. And I don't think there's really any other reasonable expona- explanation but that. So it's not about the jobs at all. And if it is about the jobs, it's only those jobs insofar as it protects the Liberal Party in that province. Right. So, okay, so you're not buying this argument about jobs because the Trudeau government has has not been intervening in, in other labor matters that have been, you know, like extremely important, I guess, in, a, in the Canadian public interest. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. And again, it's a mixture of one, we don't have SNC, we don't actually have proof about the economic impact on jobs. We actually don't know. Again, it could be 9,000. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's a lot less. I think there's an incentive for both the government and the company, however, to inflate those numbers. Like, you know, you Occam's razor this. There, if it was only 1,000 jobs, then like, then it would look a lot worse. I think it's also a matter of fairness. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, if you think uh, another factor is that like, you know, it sets up perverse incentives. The more workers you have, the more criminal you can be. The bigger the corporation you are, the bigger, more criminal you can be because at the end of the day, the argument will always default back to, well, there's X amount of jobs on the line. So what it's saying is that if you're a small or medium-sized corporation, then the law will come down on you with the wrath of God. But once you reach a certain size, then we're going to play softball with you because you've got a lot of workers on your, on your staff. And that doesn't pass the fairness test from my perspective. And again, third, it goes to this idea that there has there seems to be inconsistency from, from Trudeau on this question. So it's a really mixture of all things. Adding to that, the potential legal ambiguities between, is it even legal to consider jobs here? Is that even legal? I'm not sure. I mean, you could probably have, you know, uh, a, a panel of lawyers and they could debate that uh, on, on the show. But there's questions about the legality of considering jobs. So... Obviously, that's the spin that that Trudeau is is putting on this anyway, right? That's how he's trying to kind of save face in the midst of this scandal. And you mentioned that the liberals are are trying to spin this, obviously, into their next election platform in some way, um, gearing up for the federal election that's happening later this year. What I'm wondering is, because, you know, you're placing a lot of blame on on Trudeau and the liberals here and, and... you know, perhaps rightly so. But are, are we getting distracted by, you know, this specta- spectacle and, and zeroing in on an individual instance of it happening when, when in reality, this is like a very endemic problem? Like this, like SNC-Lavalin is surely not the only company that is doing this. I think that the, the legislation that uh, Canada signed on to um, which is the 1997 Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development Convention, um, anti-bribery, uh, anti-bribery agreement. Only two companies since 1997 have actually ever been prosecuted under this in Canada. And Canada is not really doing its due diligence to actually enforce and prohibit Canada from kind of exporting bribery to developing countries. 
So are, are we kind of, you know, missing the forest for the trees here? I mean, I think that's a fair point. And, and you know, people like Nora Loretto have written a little bit about this, how, you know, it's not that this scandal doesn't matter. And it's not that the, I think, frankly, troubling treatment of three female uh, liberal MPs, two of which, two of whom are, are racialized women by this, by this prime minister and his core team have been troubling to me. Those are, those are, those are, I think, fair points. But I think it is fair to note that Canada has been a kind of country that since it's since confederation and likely before then has been one in which you know the close nature of our of our financial elite and our political elite has has defined our nation and i think it's fair to note that there is this historical reality and and and, and snc is not necessarily the only company uh doing these things and i think I think that's important to note because it's it's one it, it gives us historical perspective it does also kind of note that that it, it for lack of a better term it, it shows that uh, this is not an anomaly uh, this is not necessarily a special case but i do think the this particular case does kind of have some meaning to it again it's not just you know company uses political and economic influence to get special treatment but it is something to say that you know the specific treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould the power of her testimony the treatment again of two other female liberal MPs um really putting into question the entire narrative hook of this government it's not just an issue of ethics in terms of the very formal legalisms it's questioning the very reason why Canadians put some faith in Justin Trudeau which was that he was going to be different and when you try to raise the bar and you fall below it, I mean, you, there's some mea culpa there, or there should be. Well, so, so I kind of wonder, and, and not to say that we shouldn't focus on there being, you know, a scandal here in Canada with this particular situation, but the fact that this is business as usual, that Canada has fallen into apparently a limited enforcement category of, of the OECD anti-bribery, anti-corruption uh, convention, li limited enforcement is one step up from little to no enforcement. So, you know, we're already not doing great in terms of abstaining from going to other countries around the world where there aren't such uh, strict regulations and, you know, bribing and bidding for contracts and exporting corruption to other places around the world. So I just wonder are we having that bigger conversation or are we just getting distracted by this? Is this really as big of a scandal as people are making it out to be? I think it is a big scandal. I think it's a big scandal because of all the things we're talking about. But I think you're right in noting that because of the things we're not talking about, it might be a lot bigger. That because this is just one instance, maybe it's a particularly ugly instance, but because it's just one instance of a kind of a long litany of Canadian companies behaving badly, both within Canada and, and outside of Canada, that perhaps we need to have more of those discussions. And I think that in some ways it's hard to do so because I think for the conservatives, their goal here is to focus entirely on this. Anything of a historical reality is going to bring them into the fray. Well, that's yeah, um, exactly it's, it's like, it's not like they yeah. haven't done this, yeah. right? I mean, I just like, no. it's not like they haven't been complicit no. in this. So I just wonder, you know, I see all of the kind of politicking. So we talk about the, the Trudeau government that's gearing up for the next election, but so are the other parties. And on, on focusing on this as a scandal as, as this kind of unique event, when maybe it isn't unique at all, you know, are we all getting distracted and not having these bigger conversations? I mean, to a certain degree, but it is unique because again, it's the first, and we can't, ex we can't extract identities, the reality of colonialism and reconciliation. The fact that the first ever Indigenous AG was part of this, that makes it unique. And the just Trudeau government really made hay about we're going to and not just include women in our cabinet and in our caucus as tokens. We're going to have a gender equal cabinet. We're going to have women of color, men of color, people from different backgrounds, and we're going to give them meaningful power. And yet what we saw was is when they used that power meaningfully, there was a lot of pressure put on them. And I think Jody Wilson-Raybould, frankly, comes off much more credibly than, than Jerry Butts and especially Michael Wernick. And the polling I saw after the initial round of testimonies showed that two-thirds of Canadians believed her and not Prime Minister Trudeau. So my view is that this is special. We can't ignore the fact that this government, which has pledged itself on gender equality and reconciliation, when an Indigenous woman would not play ball with the PMO bros, that she was, she was really pressured. I don't think we can ignore that. But I do feel that at least Jagmeet Singh, 
and the NDP, for instance, have been trying to try to tie this to bigger issues. Certainly, the NDP has talked about the specifics of this case, both on the Justice Committee and beyond it. But Jagmeet Singh, the night he won his by-election in Burnaby, for instance, said that, you know, the game is rigged. The game is rigged in Canadian society. And he talked about SNC-Lavalin, certainly. I think that's a pertinent example. But he tied it into this idea that, you know, while regular Canadians can't get the medications they need or the housing they need, corporations can always be sure that they can get the tax breaks they need or they can get the special treatment they need when they, when they are less than savory. And he, I think, is trying at least to, to bring this question about why is this happening with SNC-Lavalin? And as you know, why is this happening um, with other companies? And frankly, why will this continue to happen? Because this definitely won't be the last time. I can almost certainly guarantee that. Um, why is that happening? Well, it's the concentration of social and economic power amongst you know the 1%. And that's the reason this is happening, that we've empowered too much private industry. Um, the, the elite in this country are too powerful and they're too incestuous, for lack of a better term. And that creates the situation in which company, uh, companies like SNC-Lavalin and other major companies will continue to get special treatment from, 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 from governments. Right. And I think, it's, I think it's important to note, going back to your point about this being maybe a unique case, is is the the cabinet shuffle the cabinet shuffle of of Jody Wilson Rabel who was who was attorney general justice minister and in January of this year uh, we heard that she was becoming the minister of veteran affairs some people saw this as a demotion you know that she wasn't playing ball and you know a lot of MPs are kind of calling for uh, a further investigation into this matter. They want to hear more testimony from Jody Wilson-Raybould on on this matter to to further get to the bottom of this. Do you think that we should be we should be investigating this further? I mean, I do. I do personally. I mean, I think I think, you know, and there's no disrespect to to the the women and men who uh, served in the armed forces. Um, being somebody who teaches at the Royal Military College at least on an adjunct basis, I I understand that the you know the contributions they make uh, the reality is, however, that uh, you know, justice minister is one of the prime portfolios, one of the, the the top ones, and and veterans affairs is one that has seen a lot of turnover, both under the kind of liberal and conservative regimes recently. It's not necessarily seen as a primary cabinet position, so it it, it was seen by most as a demotion. Um, let's put it that way. And and from my perspective, again, the government has made a different argument. The government has officially said that it's because Scott Bryson retired early. He was the former head of the Treasury Board, longtime Liberal MP. And because he chose to, to, to retire before, like in advance of the election and not during the election, this supposedly meant that the government had to have a shuffle and that during that shuffle, Jody Wilson-Raybould had to move positions. And there's discussions about, well, did they offer her Indigenous Affairs? And then she has kind of made it clear that she wouldn't want to accept that position, given the the, the realities of of having to to basically enforce the Indian Act and and these discussions. And uh, there was also uh, rumors coming from a quote unquote anonymous liberal sources. Uh, we don't know who those sources are. Frankly, those sources could have been from the prime minister's office. We don't know that called into question her ability to handle the work, called into question her character called into question her difficulty to be worked with. And frankly, if I may be frank, though that's consistently coded with racist and misogynistic like uh, understandings of how women of color are talked about when they are um, when they are disciplined at work or when they are fired from positions or when they leave positions. It often talks about how they are difficult to work with and things of that kind. That language was coming from liberal sources. Certain liberal backbenchers made comments about her inability to handle the job. And so we see a lot of this happening that that there was like this effort to, in many ways, either shift a reason of why she was moved or to make it about uh, her, her failure, her inability to do the work, her, her lack of ability to handle the pressure, quote unquote. Um, so that was the first part that troubled me is that, like, the, the, you know, again, this party that ostensibly is about social justice and reconciliation was weaponizing through anonymized sources, uh, you know, racist and sexist, cut, like, coded language against Jody Wilson Raybould. Um, but I think we do, frankly, need to hear more about her because we heard from Michael Wernick twice. We heard from jo from Gerald Butts after her testimony. And this isn't to say that he is lying or she is lying, but their testimonies do conflict. 
at least in some ways. They do. So I think, they do. So I think, yeah. So I think, frankly, uh, it's reasonable to ask for her to come back and to kind of re-question her with some of Gerald Butts and Michael Warnick's responses in mind. And so I think we need to hear that. But the re- reality is we won't. The liberals have kind of made the decision that they've moved on beyond this. And that particular committee was, um, um, you know, it, it's structured in such a way that uh, the five of the nine votes, I believe, I believe that's the amount. I think it's a five-four. Five of the votes are liberal, and the four go to the opposition parties. And so the liberals uh, had a, not, a majority on that committee. So I, I, I really feel that the, the way forward in this ultimately is a, a national inquiry, in a, done by nonpartisan bodies, where the testimonies will be under oath, and we would need to hear from no fewer than. Katie Telford, Gerald Butts, those are both kind of, uh, Gerald Butts now former, key staffers within Trudeau's office, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and Justin Trudeau himself, all under oath about what was said, what was not said, when it was all said. And I think without that, we can only assume the Occam's razor. Again, um, this isn't a court of law. We don't need to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. In the public court, it's preponderance of evidence. And my preponderance of evidence here is the prime minister booted her because she wouldn't go easy on the Lavalin. And he did it to, to protect his political interests in Quebec, which, if not illegal, is certainly immoral. And until Justin Trudeau does a kind of agrees to a national inquiry, I think Canadians can only be reasonably expected to assume his wrongdoing. I think that's where we're at right now. So, I mean, like his, certainly in the, in the wake of, of all of this, his, uh, his kind of woke uh, woke on gender, woke on all sorts of issues. Brand has taken a hit. Oh yeah, yeah you know, certainly a hundred percent. I mean, there was always questions about it. I mean, the Liberal Party is historic. The Liberal Party is the only f- major federal party in Canadian history to have only been led by white males. Uh, the Conservative Party has had Kim Campbell lead it. The New Democrats have had two women, uh, and and now a, a a racialized man lead it. The Green Party is currently led by a woman. You know, the, most of Canada's major federal parties have had at least some limited form of non-white male leadership, the Liberal Party being uh, a Canada, one of Canada's two oldest parties, and not including that. And in some ways, therefore, it's not surprising that the, the, the most monochromatic and most patriarchal of parties in terms of its prime ministerial leadership, its federal leadership, has had these issues. I don't think that's necessarily surprising to me. Um, so I was always kind of skeptical of, of, of Trudeau's approach. Yet, I think a lot of Canadians were willing to believe him. Um, I think a lot of Canadians were, uh, I think, supportive of his gender equal cabinet. I frankly thought that was a good idea. Um, I think that's really what government should aim to do uh, going forward, is to try to have a gender equal cabinet and gender equal slates of candidates running. So, for instance, the New Democrats in most of their elections have at least 50% of their, 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 their candidates being women. The Liberal Party isn't quite there yet, um, but, but you know they've sort of tried to make moves in that direction, I suppose. But, it, yeah, this has certainly hit him hard. I mean, Jody Wilson-Raybould leaving, Jane Philpott leaving, uh, Selena Cesar-Chavantes leaving, and especially in that last case, her kind of directly questioning Justin Trudeau on social media, uh, calling him out for, for not really listening. It, 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 it hit him in that credibility. Now, the question is, I mean, is that going to cost them a lot of votes? I mean, I'm not sure. But does that maybe make women less enthusiastic about the prime minister? Maybe it does. And again, it's in elections, it's not just about who votes for you, right? You know, it's not just about, you know, will I piss off somebody enough that they will stop voting for the Liberal Party and they're going to go vote for the NDP or Greens or Conservatives or what have you. Sometimes it's, is that person going to donate a little bit less money? Is that person going to knock on a few less doors? Is that person going to make a few less phone calls or lick a few less envelopes, you know, when we're running these elections? And that's when you can start to see the knock-on effects, when you de-energize your base and you demoralize your base. And I can see that having some of an effect on, on, on certain elements of the Liberal Party who prioritize women's equality and Indigenous reconciliation. And so, on the one hand, it seems like you're saying, okay, there's value to being woke if you if we can call it that in these ways in prioritizing you know having half uh having a cabinet that has is comprised of half women um so there's value to that but at the same time you're maybe that that doesn't go very far it's something that parties should aim for i think that 
um, if if the nature of representative de- democracy is to represent people, then we have to look at it representing people than more than just on the plot of land they happen to live in in this country, but represent the diversity of Canadians in terms of class, in terms of race, in terms of religion, in terms of gender, and what have you. So I think representation is extremely important. Um, but I do sort of have to wonder if, you know, if you're going to walk the wa- talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And if you don't, you do open yourselves up to more criticism. And the reality here is a lot of people say, well, what would Andrew Shearer have done? Wouldn't he be worst? And maybe he would be. I think maybe there's a chance he would be worst. Uh, maybe a good chance, frankly. But the reality is, is Justin, uh, Andrew Shearer never promised a gender equal cabinet. Andrew Shearer never really made those promises. Um, so in a sense, the bar is higher when you do play the, the, the politics of wokeness. It does lead you up to kind of accusations of hypocrisy, of not living up to your end of the bargain. And I think whether that's fair or not, because maybe it's not fair. Maybe that's not fair. I think that's one of the reasons why this has hurt Trudeau, because his brand was invested in that. His brand was all about like this, this, this image of wokeness. And when your brand is predicated on it, it's, it, it matters. It's one of the reasons why, for instance, you know, Donald Trump, he, he, you know, he, his brand doesn't really suffer when he's a racist or a misogynist because that, 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 that's, that's his that's brand. A big, yeah, that's his <laughs> brand. But if one of the reasons people suggest he doesn't want to release his taxes is one, there's probably be, there might be some criminal stuff that could come out. But two, there's some people are saying it's as benign as the fact that he's not as rich as he portrays himself to be. And that that's going to hurt his credibility as this like this billionaire mogul that maybe he doesn't have a lot of money. And so in some ways, it might hurt your brand more to be seen as less rich than it would to be seen as a racist. For Justin Trudeau, his brand could really be baked into this idea that he's a you know a feminist PM. And so it hurts him. And again, it hurts him with the sort of voters he needs to either keep voting for him, but he. Even if they stop voting for him, the kind of voter that's going to need to be energized in an election, because you don't just win an election with votes, you win an election with donors and volunteers. Right. Well, so I think this is kind of bringing up some important important conversations about politicians and kind of what they do and, and how we kind of measure maybe their authenticity. I feel like no one's surprised, as you point out, if Donald Trump is being a racist, because that's kind of the platform that he ran on. But when we see people saying that they're woke and then not being woke, uh, we feel like we've been duped in some way. And I think that this brings up kind of a, a big question about, about authenticity in politicians and, and how we can actually kind of measure that. How can, we, how can we actually know that what we're buying into is actually legitimate and real? I think a lot of people kind of came out of... Uh, of 10 years of, of Harper and, and thought that they were voting for something different with Trudeau. And they thought that, you know, things were going to be better and that he was making some big promises, right? He promised things like electoral reform. He was campaigning on, you know, better gender equity and, and indigenous reconciliation and all of these things that, you know, people, I think people maybe bought into a little bit. Oh no! Well, Canadians certainly bought in. I think I think that's certainly the case. Again, it was a mixture of, you know, the the realities of our first past the post system is that the conservatives uh, have a, a, an eternal benefit in the fact that the the vote on the other side. Again, I don't see the Liberal Party as a center left party. I, I do see them as a center right party. Um, but the kind of perception of Canadian voters is that there is the conservatives on the uh, right or center right, whatever you want to call it. And then there are the Liberals, NDP, and Greens, and Bloc in Quebec, at least, that are all um, broadly the kind of left part of the political spectrum. So the Conservatives can say, we always get 30% of the vote or so, and it's just about getting that last 10% to get us a majority government. And so the Conservatives, though, are always at this precarious position of, well, if one of the other parties ends up getting 40 or or more, we pretty much can't win anymore because we're capped. Um, So it's... It's tricky for them in that sense. For Trudeau and for Canadians, I felt that they were a mixture of they liked what Trudeau was saying and how he was saying it. And the longer a government is in power, the more likely it is to lose because um, governments tend to become seen as arrogant or the scandals build up. And you can forget about party scandals sometimes when they leave. 
um, you know, uh, sometimes less than others. I find the new Democrats get a less leeway in this than liberals or conservatives. But for instance, uh, Jean Chrétien's era was largely forgotten when when Justin Trudeau was in power because it had been about a decade since since the Chrétien Martin years, um, and he was able to come in with a fresh slate. I mean, I guess the historians in the in 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 the crowd would always say, well, the Liberal Party has a kind of vested approach in making promises during elections. And then, and then, and then, not necessarily keeping those promises. And I think that on electoral reform and on other issues, that was certainly the case here. But you're right in saying that when Justin Trudeau seeks a mandate, you seek a mandate on certain policies, but also on a certain demeanor and a certain tone. And that tone was about uh, progressives. It was about um, uh, being a gender equal. Gender equal. It was about having these things. And I think that he really came adrift in this recent scandal where it started to clash with his mandate. And in terms of authenticity, I mean, it's tricky. Part of what I feel people love about Bernie Sanders and love about Sven Robinson, who's now kind of re-entering Canadian politics running in B.C., and people love about uh, Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, um, is their kind of long careers of being consistent in their values. And with Justin Trudeau, we didn't have that. Now, part of that is the reality he is a relatively young prime minister. He wasn't active uh, 30 years ago in politics, right? You know, he was a child 30 years ago. But the reality was um, that, you know, he didn't really have this long record. He's an Obama-type figure in some ways. You know what I mean? Relatively recent on the scene, relatively young, no real blemishes, but no real stances on anything of a kind of purely ideological value. I didn't really know what Justin Trudeau stood for, and I don't think most Canadians did uh, uh, for most of that election. Um, whereas if you compare it to somebody, again, like, like a Bernie Sanders, you can say, you know, does this guy believe in Medicare for all? Well, you could say probably, because back in 1990, when the United States had just, everyone was running a victory lap because they've defeated communism, and the, the Democrats were, were a right-wing party and the Republicans were a right-wing party and everyone wanted to, you know, brutalize African-Americans and stuff. But in that context, you had someone like Bernie Sanders speaking differently. And much the same could be said of Jeremy Corbyn, who, you know, during the Blairite kind of hegemonistic era where Margaret Thatcher would say, my greatest creation was Tony Blair, which is to say that, like, my greatest creation was making a liberal party that was effectively a Tory party that Jeremy Corbyn was still the one kind of talking about these things, that when we come into this new era, there are politicians who have credibility from before the neoliberal bump. And I don't know if a young politician in that sense can generate that credibility um, but or authenticity, but I don't know if Justin Trudeau has a kind of longstanding authenticity. I think Canadians bought in because he's an effective politician who ran an effective campaign. And at least for a while, he was able to just juxtapose himself to one, Harper, his predecessor. But, in, uh, but uh, when Trump became prime president, he was able to juxtapose himself to Trump as well, which was uh, even an easier job, frankly, given that Trump is you know, abhorrent even in relation to Stephen Harper. So I guess I'm wondering how we kind of sort through this and kind of because as you point out, you know, maybe Trudeau is more of the Obama camp in that, again, Obama was, you know, seemed like he was a change. He was a black, the first black president of the United States. He seemed to be, you know, again, woke on certain issues, but was absolutely just, you know, like a standard kind of Democrat and, and, and didn't really enact, um, you know, expansive social change in America to make lives better for Americans overall. Um, he was seen to be a very establishment kind of politician. And I guess I'm wondering, how do we kind of get out? I mean, unlike the U.S., we don't have a two-party system. We have more than two parties. How do we kind of get out of this lesser of two evils politics? Because, you know, I think some people bought into what Trudeau was selling in 2015, and some people just didn't want Harper. And they thought, well, at least this person is against, you know, Islamophobia, and at least this person, you know, can take a stand on particular issues, which apparently is, is the bar, you know, <laughs> um, w w at least it's a bar. I don't know if it's the bar, but it's a bar by which we can say, well, at least this person isn't racist, completely racist, or, 
you know, at least they care about gender equality. They're saying that they care about gender equality. How do we get out of that frame of mind of thinking, well, okay, the NDP doesn't really have a ton of support at this point, at least representation at this point in Canada. So, you know, how do we, how do we kind of get out from thinking that the Liberals are the only option? Well, I think, you know, one of the realities is that, you know, electoral reform really would have helped. And that's why the Liberals killed it. Because it, it, it's, you know, I, I've made a YouTube video about this on my channel where I said, frankly, like the Liberals' electoral strategy in 2019, especially now that they're back up against the ropes a little bit, if you read social media, it is about holding uh, progressives hostage. That's, that's their goal. It's about holding you. Uh, because it's like, you got to vote for us or sheer wins. And the Liberal Party won't say it like that because it looks awfully vindictive that what Justin Trudeau will say is it's a choice between me and Andrew Scheer and Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh uh, they don't exist, right, in that in that narrative. And then liberal supporters on social media, you'll see a lot of them say, for instance, well, you know, Justin Trudeau may not be perfect, but it's either him or Sheer, and there's nothing we can do. And and I'll say to those people, well, we could have had electoral reform. It's like, well, yeah, but the NDP made it so that we couldn't have reform, which, again, is a total misread of the history of that, of that electoral reform committee and what have you, and it puts us in this framework. So I think as a baseline, the Liberal Party's goal in this election, and really in since every election, probably since the mid-40s, has been predicated on holding progressives hostage. Maybe uh, uh, historians need to do a better job talking about the Liberal Party's historical trajectory. I think that more needs to be made of the commonalities between liberals and conservatives. One helpful example I think I've used is that often people will call for the liberals and the NDP to kind of form a coalition against the conservatives, but I'll say that and in both British Columbia and Saskatchewan, there's been effectively coalitions against the New Democrats by liberals and conservatives. That's what the BC Liberal Party is, is it's an anti-NDP coalition of liberals and conservatives. And that's what the Saskatchewan Party is. It's an anti-NDP coalition of liberals and conservatives. And much the same can be said about the Manitoba Party and, and, and uh, the Manitoba PCs, although the Liberal Party does still exist in a sense there. It's largely an anti-NDP coalition of liberals and conservatives. So in a sense... What you're seeing is this sort of this, this historical collusion. And, and in this debate, one of the things I've tried to point out to people is when you say Justin Trudeau is, is very different from Sheer, yet, you know, Justin Trudeau still bans gay men from giving blood. Justin Trudeau still supports Trump's immigration policies because he's refused to uh, suspend the safe third country agreement. Um, basically uh, implying that Canada sees the United States as a safe place for refugees, which we know it is not. Objectively, it's not a safe place for refugees. That supports Andrew Scheer's position. Both Scheer and the Conservative, both Scheer and Trudeau uh, oppose the charter rights of postal workers. Both Scheer and Trudeau put CEOs before pensioners. Both Scheer and Trudeau voted against an NDP motion to build more housing for Indigenous communities. And this is all within this, this you know, relatively recent span of time. Uh, and so I think that connection has to be made. Um, but I think in terms of getting people out of this lesser of two evils thing, I think it's going to require uh, connecting, showing the connections between the liberals and conservatives uh, that exist. And I think one of the main goals has to be that Canadians need to hold the liberals to account. Because if an election was to be held today, what would likely be the case is a conservative minority government, if we look at the polls right now. Um, the polls... The most recent one I've seen from Nanos, one of the more reputable pollsters, has the NDP at 20, the Liberals in the low 30s, and the Conservatives in the mid-30s. And that's not likely enough for any one party to get a majority. And the NDP at its most recent convention has uh, committed to, in a case of a minority parliament, demanding electoral reform in exchange for their support. So the Liberal Party would have to play ball, and I think it would require, frankly, all of these you know, ABC voters, anything but conservative voters, to put pressure on the liberals in that case to actually support the NDP's demand for a uh, proportional system. Because what the NDP would likely demand is mixed member proportional at a 5% threshold with an open list and not through a referendum, but through a, a um, but through a, uh, uh, just, just an act of parliament, which is totally legitimate in my view. One thing that might happen in the medium term, though, um, or in the, re is, the state of electoral reform in two provinces. In PEI, they're about to go into an election relatively soon where there's a chance the Green Party might form government. And the Green Party, not just in PEI but across the country, is a general supporter of proportional representation. 
And if they form a government in PEI, they may implement proportional representation there. It should be remembered that uh, was it, either it was last year or the year before, uh, PEI held a referendum on on, on, on electoral reform. The uh, proportional representation side won, and the liberals chose to ignore the result. Okay, so you're saying here that liberals and conservatives aren't aren't as uh, dissimilar as we might think, I guess, in the first right. But but also, you seem to be putting some faith in the NDP um, to to actually carry out a progressive agenda. And and I want to kind of push you on that because yeah. you know we talk a lot about politicians uh, who kind of say one thing and do another. Trudeau being an example of of you know coming across as woke and being kind of like you know the good looking, charismatic seeming politician, and maybe not following through on that. So, but is that is that the nature of politics in general? I mean, you know, the NDP is making some promises now, uh, promises on electoral reform. They're making some promises on universal pharmacare, um, making some promises on on the housing crisis uh, for Indigenous communities and, and more broadly. How how can we kind of measure the authenticity of of the NDP here? I mean, in the last election, Mulcair ran on pretty much a centrist platform, balanced budgets, uh, not really progressive at all. Why is the NDP, uh, you know, seen to be, like, why do you think it's a beacon of hope here? Well, a couple of things. One, the Mulcair, that, I think that was a narrative largely popularized by the Star and, and other like sources. I think that the Mulcair budget, I think what lacks some coherency, if I may be frank, um, I think that it needed to be much clearer in, in raising taxes on the rich. But to be fair, that plan did include the creation of a national pharmacare and child care plan. Um, it was certainly to the left of Trudeau, and I, and I don't buy the, the general narrative that it was a centrist platform. But it was but a platform about, that lacked courage. But what about balancing the budget? I mean, that's certainly balancing budgets. Balancing budgets is not necessarily a left or right wing platform because you could say we're going to balance the budget by raising taxes on the wealthiest people by twenty or thirty percent, and we're going to have a, we're going to run surpluses through a program of economic equality. If we tax the rich appropriately in Canada, we might be able to have all the programs of our dreams and a balanced budget. It doesn't have to be one or the other necessarily, right? So I think it was Mulcair lacking courage on the pledge to raise tax reform or on tax reform rather than a general ideological approach. And I mean, full disclosure, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an NDPer, but I was not necessarily a fan of Tom Mulcair. The general, but, but, but specifically on, on the NDP, I mean, look, the NDP has broken promises too. That's certainly the case. But if you look to the BC NDP government, They've kept a lot more of their promises. And just look at electoral reform, for instance. Um, the Liberals promised electoral reform. They, they promised unequivocally 100%, 1,800 times they made this promise, that 2015 will be the last election under first-past-the-post. And here we are. We're going into another election, 2019, and it's going to be under first-past-the-post. Justin Trudeau lied to Canadians. 100%. John Horgan and the British Columbia NDP, under a minority government where flexibility is much more needed, promised clearly a referendum on proportional representation, and they delivered on that referendum within a year and a half, faster than Justin Trudeau pledged to do it. And Justin Trudeau has absolute power with his majority government. So on that issue alone, the NDP delivered. Now, I'm disappointed that British Columbians didn't agree with me on the need for electoral reform, but the NDP made a promise there and kept it. Uh, even Rachel Notley, uh, some of her broken promises include things like, you know, not not going through with the uh, the oil royalty review. But the you know the the BC NDP government promised a fifteen dollar minimum wage, and they deliver. You know the BC NDP or the the Alberta NDP government, the BC NDP government promised a fifteen dollar minimum wage, and while they're moving slower to it than I would have liked, in part because green pressure has 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 kind of eased them there. They, they've kept that promise. Um, so I think that in some ways, I think, you know, history shows us that all parties have lied to Canadians. But I think history will show us, I think, frankly, that New Democrats um, tend to keep their promises perhaps a little bit more than liberals do. And I don't think that's um, it's partisan for me to say that, but I don't think it's wrong. So how so how do we measure the authenticity of someone like Jagmeet Singh? I mean, we t you talked about 
different leaders around the world, you know, people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. And, and certainly you can look to their track record and just see that they've been so consistently talking about these issues over time. And I think that's one of the, you know, big points for Bernie Sanders. He's not just jumping on the woke train now because it's like mm-hmm. fashionable to be woke about the 1% and the fact that, you know, wealth is concentrated and that there's inequality has been growing, you know, since the 1980s. And, you know, he's been saying that he's been saying that consistently. So how do we uh, as Canadians approach someone like Jagmeet Singh, who who seems very charismatic? It's also like Trudeau, kind of a good looking man. He's saying maybe the right things. But how are we supposed to trust that it's not some sort of kind of fake woke agenda and and, you know, that he will actually deliver on these promises? I think that this is like an important question. No, I think I think that's very fair. And I think, as I noted, in a sense, all three major party leaders um, are in this tricky position, because if you want to do the Bernie comparison, it's physically impossible. They're all far too young. I mean, Justin Trudeau is the old man of the three. And he's 47. (laughs) Yeah, Justin Trudeau is the old man of the three party, because I think both Sheer and Singh are 40, there or about. I know Singh, when he was elected leader, Peter was 40, uh, 38. And I think here is about the same age. Um, so in a sense, you have three very, very young leaders. I mean, you compare that to, you know, the 2016 presidential race where both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were rather old and, and certainly Bernie Sanders, very popular. He may well be president and he will be a very, very old man. Um, it's, so it's hard to make that direct comparison. I think one thing you could look at is, again, like history matters. And I think one thing that Canadians often praise the NDP for, historically. This is one of the reasons why Tommy Douglas was chosen as greatest Canadian in 2004 when the CBC did that, that national poll, and you know they ranked the best Canadians. Although Don Cherry was in the list of top 10, so maybe it's not the greatest, uh, the greatest <laughs> measurement. But, but you know it had other great Canadians, the controversial ones like Pierre Trudeau, who some people really love and some people hate, and other people like Terry Fox and David Suzuki, I believe, was in the top 10. So there were a lot, it was an interesting cross-section of, of Canadians. Uh, Tommy Douglas was number one, and I think a lot of people look to the CCF and the NDP and say, 20, 30 years before things become mainstream, that's the party talking about them. And even figures within Jagmeet Singh's team, like Sven Robinson, who's come back to politics. Sven, Sven Robinson talked about GLBTQ rights when no one else was, even in the NDP. Sven Robinson was on the committee that helped draft the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He's the reason disable, disability was included, and against his words, uh, the liberals and conservatives on the committee did not include GLBT rights. Sven, Sven was vindicated by history. He's lived long enough, he was a, young, a very young politician at the time, to see that his rationale would be accepted by the justices. And now, you know, Section 15, while not saying it explicitly, does include sexual orientation, right? You know what I mean? That's a change that's come with time. And so you could look to the New Democrats and I think credibly say that this is the party that in the 1930s was the only party that wanted to give Asian Canadians the right to vote. And now we look at that, that period of time where we systematically disenfranchised non-white Canadians and said, that's a terrible time in our history. The NDP was the party that talked about universal health care and stuff very well before it happened, even in Saskatchewan, where they implemented it. Uh, the CCF NDP, for instance, and, and a lot of the figures that formed that party, like J.S. Woodsworth, who talked about these things even earlier, going back to the Winnipeg general strike, some of these things. So you could say that Jagmeet Singh himself is a very new figure. Canadians don't know a lot about him. That's a good thing in some ways because it means that people can get to know you, but it also is a challenge. Do, will people find you credible? But I think that much like you can look to the history of the conservative party and say, well, Andrew Scheer may not be Stephen Harper, but we don't like him. And much like you can look to the history of the liberal party and say, well, this is a party that's had some scandals before. You could, in some ways, look to the NDP on the positive end and say, well, this is a party that turns out usually to be right, that turns out to be right on the issues of gender equality. The NDP, for instance, back in the 70s started mandating um, that it, in a total party structures, at least, they would have gender equality. Seemed, it was a foreign idea at the time that was laughed at by a lot of people. But now it's increasingly become the norm that organizations dedicate themselves to trying to have gender balances on their executives and as the liberals do now in their cabinet. And so I think that that's the, the point you could make, that the, the history of the party 
gives authenticity here. And it's not just about Jagmeet, but it's about this broad CCF-NDP tradition. And that's it for our show. You can visit our website at lowercasetruthpodcast.com to subscribe or subscribe on whatever platform you use to access sounds. SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Until next time. Spotify.